I think it's about developing that mental toughness about, okay, how how am I going to control my emotions to an external environment? And that's what we learnt in, in sports. It was building up resilience to, to the outside. But also what I learnt was I can only control what I can control and that's my emotions and how I'm going to re- react to certain things. And I certainly use those tools when I sort of went into politics there were all these external forces which I could not control you know the media the trolling the the death threats the people ringing my office and you know hating me because I was an Aboriginal person hating me because I challenged the status quo and hating me because I was outspoken all I could control was how I was going to react to that. Thank you everyone for your support on season one. Let's get season two underway. You're listening to So What's Next, the podcast for Australian athletes to share their stories of transitioning out of sport and the things they learned along the way. I'm Jamie Nobbs, a former Australian figure skater, and I'm excited to share these stories with you. On this week's episode of So What's Next, I have been hanging out for this interview and I'm so excited to be sharing it. So I would like to welcome Nova Paris to the podcast. Nova is a member of the Moran people of Western Arnhem Land and is an incredibly successful woman and a trailblazer across both sports and politics. Nova is a two-time Olympian, but here's the kicker. She's not competed in one, but two different Summer Olympic sports. First, Nova is part of the Hockey Roos team won gold at the 1996 Atlanta Olympics and became the first Indigenous Australian to win an Olympic gold medal. Nova then went on to compete in athletics. She competed at the 1988 Commonwealth Games, winning the 200-metre sprint and uh, sharing the win for the 4x100-metre relay. She then went on to compete at the 2000 Sydney Olympics, reaching the semi-finals of the 400-metre sprint and fifth in the 4x100-metre relay. Post-sport, Nova was elected to the Australian Senate as a Senator for the Northern Territory at the 2013 federal election as Julia Gillard's named captain's pick. This made Nova Australia's first Indigenous woman elected into federal parliament. Nova is now starting up a foundation which we get into in the podcast, so I can't wait to share this all with you. Thank you so much for joining, Nova. Absolute ah, pleasure. Thanks for having me on. We start off each podcast with the same question. What was your childhood like? Um, so I was born here in Darwin. My mum, she was a single mum and she raised myself and my sister Vanessa. We lived in housing commission as kids, but we didn't know any different. It was, you know, we had a, a beautiful mother. We had a big extended family and spent a lot of time with my grandparents. And, you know, we didn't really have mum much at all. Mum, you know, was a member of the Stolen Generation, so she, she um, you know, she didn't have much of a childhood and um, had many, or she had no opportunities at all as a kid growing up. But what I do thank my mum for is the value of education and the value of sports, which she um, took my sister and myself to everywhere, all over Darwin. You know, we played multiple sports. So as a kid growing up until I was nine, that's where we lived in in a, in a small flat, and then she um, 
Then she brought her first home. She worked very hard as as a single mum, and then she met my stepfather. And um, not long after, she moved into the house where she still lives to this day, some forty years on. And so that was my childhood. I had a, an amazing mother who was a exceptional athlete herself. She prided herself on you know you get nothing for nothing in life. You have to work hard. So and my stepfather, who was a policeman up here in the Northern Territory, he was also in the Navy and he served in Vietnam twice as a young sailor. And I guess with the combination of the the value of education that my mum had and, you know, getting off your backside and working hard and the discipline that my stepdad instilled, a lot of people who knew me weren't surprised that I went on and did what I did in, in sports. Um, you know, my sister, she served in the Australian Army for 10 years and this is her 14th year working for United Nations. She lives in in Kenya. So, um, yeah, we, we had a an opportunity growing up in Darwin where it was very multicultural, you know, 40% of Aboriginal people. We had a pretty good childhood growing up and I'm very grateful for all the opportunities that, you know, my mum worked really hard for and gave us. That's a really incredible story. Um, <laughs> in terms of you and your sister, were you close? Are you still close? Yeah, look, Vanessa, she's only two years younger than me. She, growing up, like, we both did little athletics. We both played hockey. Vanessa did ballroom dancing and softball where I played football and touch football. So there were things that we were very different in. But, you know, only less than two years apart, we, we are quite close. But, you know, one thing that I do find with my sister and probably my myself, our psychics, are uh, that, um, you know, you, you have to work hard in life. Nothing of great success comes easy. It's, it's, it's hard work. And, you know, I would love for my sister to come home from Africa. And, you know, she's She's been through a couple of civil wars where she lived in the in the Ivory Coast and, and she went through that. And for me, I look at her and I'm like, you're just a bloody adrenaline junkie. You're sitting over there. No, I shouldn't say sitting over there, but working for the United Nations. And then she'll say the same thing about me with my sport, you know, where I represent Australia for 13 years and, and the work that I've done over the last 15 years um, and traveling around. And, and my time in politics. So, you know, it's fair to say I, I think that, you know, we're both achievers in, in our own right and made ultimate sacrifices of being away from family and, you know, being so focused on the things that we set out to achieve. But, you know, um, I have a lot of admiration for her, likewise, with, you know, with the stuff that I guess that she's seen seen me doing in my lifetime as well. So, you know, we, we bounce off each other. We agree, then we disagree. Most most likely like most siblings in life but um yeah she she's led it a, a pretty incredible career so far 23 years of serving australia yeah i think even in two different kind of lines of work you two have are just so strong it's incredible to hear like her story as well i, I haven't really read much into your sister so it's really cool to hear that yeah. tell me tell me about your relationship with sports so you mentioned little athletics you started your hockey career before your athletics career though so what was the relationship like there how did that how did you pretty much pursue your career so um my mum and all my aunties and uncles they all play hockey up here in darwin and we've only got the two seasons up here in darwin your wet season and dry season and there are a number of sports 
that was played during dry season, that was hockey. And so from the time I could walk, I had a hockey stick in my hand because my, my family played played the game. And it was actually my Italian godmother, Annie Cesarina Gonzardi, that got me into athletics. And she used to work in the in the shop there and her kids, you know, did athletics themselves. So she took me to athletics when I was about five years old and, and I came home with all these blue ribbons and so my love of athletics sort of grew from there because of because of my um, uh, grandmother's next door neighbour. And so from a young age, I did both sports, hockey and athletics. Um, represented athletics, the NT from a junior, won many medals. But unfortunately, there was no senior athletics, so I stopped running when I was about fourteen or fifteen. And uh, whilst I was also playing hockey. I um, made the Australian under-16 schoolgirls team um, in Adelaide when I was 16. Yeah, 16 I was that year. And so it was from there. Then the following year, I made the Australian under-18s. And I um, I got to rub shoulders, I think, with your mum when she came up here to, to Darwin prior to the 1988 um, Olympics. She was up here in Darwin with the, with the Hockey Roo girls before they went to Seoul. And because I was in the Australian junior um, team at that time, I got to train with that hockey team and then watching a lot of my heroes and role models, you know, with, with your mum and Elspeth Clement, you know, Tracy Belvin and, and Leanne too. So I was just in awe of these um, amazing hockey players and then they won gold and, and I was like, wow, you know, I got to play hockey with these girls and rub shoulders and so I met Jackie Pereira and, and they were like, if you ever come to, to Perth, you know, you're welcome to come and play hockey with us. So that's sort of how it took off my hockey career in 1990 when I had my daughter Jess. Um, she was born a week after my 19th birthday and I was in the Australian 21 squad at the time. And so I had to make that choice of, you know, if I wanted to be serious and, and you know, pursue my dream of um, going to the Olympics, I had to leave Darwin. You know, I have this thing in life that, you know, success breeds success. And so for me, I, I left Darwin when I was 21 years old. It was do or die, and, and I made that phone call to, to Elspeth Clements and um, said I wanted to move down to Perth, and, and could she help me out? And she did, and she mentored me during that time, and I got to play for the Mighty Pirates when I was in, in Perth, and, you know, in that team we had seven Australian players, and so I felt that I was in I was in awe, but also sort of thrown in the mix of all these great, um, legendary hockey players and so I've I've ne- never looked back since you know it, it took me 12 months from the day that I landed in Perth to when I was on the plane heading to Japan to play my first international hockey game for Australia and yeah so I never looked back from then but you know I, I always believe that um, you know a lot of people they weigh too much of that oh will I do this will I you know, not do that. And it was a big risk, but at the same time for me as this, you know, young Aboriginal girl from the top end who had a two-year-old girl who was 21, I had to leave my my comfort zone and my family and friends to pursue my dream. And, and that's how it all sort of took place. My um my mum was actually talking, I was, I was talking to mum last night about you and she said she remembers the first time you rocked up to Perth to play for the Pirates. And she was like, this yeah. woman's an incredible athlete. Uh, it it sounds like you've had an incredible career from the start and it's such a brave move, so young as well. And especially with a kid, that must have been really hard. Where did the drive come from to actually play hockey? What was it about hockey that you were like, this is cool, I want to pursue this as an Olympic sport? 
I guess, you know, like my mum, she never represented the NT in hockey, but she represented the Northern Territory in soccer. I love the fact that it was a team environment. And I guess it, it really, truly, that, that moment when I was a 17-year-old kid up here in Darwin and, you know, I, I got to rub shoulders with you, you, you know, your Sharon Buchanan's, your, your mum, Lee Cates and Michelle Cates and Elspeth Clements and the likes of those men just actually be a 17-year-old girl and watch those women bring home gold for Australia. And it was just phenomenal. And I think that was the planting of the seed was, yeah, I can do this and I want to do it. And so, you know, each year that I went away, I, you know, made the Australian under-18s and then Australian 21s and, you know, having Jessica when I was 19 years old. And, you know, that's not an ingredient to go to one Olympics, let alone two Olympics and in two different sports. But I think the motivation also came from the fact that my mum as a kid, you know, she was eight years old when she was taken off her mum and sent to the Tiwi Islands with her other siblings as a part of the stolen generation, you know, as part of, you know, the, the historic, um, you know, atrocities of this country with the white Australia policy. And my mum never had freedom to play sports as a young kid growing up and her education was minimal. So I think as a parent, I realise a lot now because I've got a grandson is that you want your own children to have a better life than what you did. And so I think for my mum, she saw how gifted I was physically and I had the mental discipline and, and she helped me live my dreams. You know, when I was in Perth and as homesick as I got, you know, we didn't have mobile phones back in those days, but you'd ring 1-800-REVERSE and she'd say, oh, will you accept the reverse charge call from Nova Perrick? And, and she'd accept it. And I'd be like, oh, I'm homesick. I want to come home. And she's like, Nova, nothing changes here in Darwin. And she'd just hang up on me. So it, it was, you know, it was a tough love from my mum. And she saw that I was an exceptionally talented woman. And, and, she, and she used to say, you know, I didn't have these opportunities as a kid. And I think that that to me was really important to me that, I never wanted to disrespect my mum. I never wanted to disrespect my grandparents because they didn't have the freedom of what sports gave to me. They didn't have that because they were locked up in dormitories when they were young kids and they didn't have education. So, you know, I, I learned that at a very young age that, you know, I had to maximise the, all the opportunities that my mum and my grandparents didn't have. Do you think that drive and that motivation is now instilled in your daughter? Do you think she holds that same drive? Is she as driven in sport as you are? I've noticed she's a bit of a hockey player. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. So my daughter, Des, she went to boarding school in New South Wales and she played for New South Wales as a junior and then she made the New South Wales under-18 squad. And, you know, I had never taught her a skill in hockey in my life because she learned it all by herself at boarding school and she's had some great coaches. So... You know, it's it's in the DNA, I guess, the the physical talent. But it's interesting. She's very independent, and my kids know that there's no secret to success. You've you've just got to work hard. And you know, she's gone back to Sydney at the moment. She's she's back playing, and she's still in the development squad, but she's studying nursing. So she's sort of set in her own way. But the thing is, what my kids know is like there is no secret to success. You know, you have to set your own alarm clock. You have to get up. You have to be motivated yourself. You know, if this is your dream to achieve big, it's only 
can be achieved by you wanting to have the desire and the discipline and the motivation. And it's interesting because my son, Jack, who's 16 years old, and he should have gone to World Juniors this year. But of course, the COVID's been shut down and, and Jack is currently ranked number five in the world for the 400 metres. He's won five national titles in athletics and broken numerous Victorian records. And he's extremely disciplined, extremely motivated, and he knows about the ultimate sacrifices you have to make. And he he, he sometimes, um, he's come home from school and said, oh, mum, you know, my mates just think it's all in the DNA. He only can run fast because of DNA. They don't see the, the, the running in the rain, hail or shine and the, the sacrifices you make and all the rest of it. So, you know, I, I my kids know and it's the choices they have to make. If if they want something bad enough, they've certainly got the talent, the DNA to do it, but only they can motivate themselves and they certainly know that it doesn't come easy, you have to work hard. I completely agree with that. I remember my mum used to say, talent can only get you so far, it has to come mm-hmm. from the heart. Can you tell me a little bit about your transition from hockey uh, into athletics? So you'd been to one Olympics, where did the drive come from to switch sports and then aim for another Olympics? I guess my first childhood dream was to run at an Olympic Games and I've got this newspaper article I I show often when I give um, talks to to people and and to school kids and the headline is Nova Paris, can she bring home gold for Australia in the Territory? And I was like nine years old at that time. So, you know, there was no pressure on a nine-year-old kid growing up here in the Territory, especially when it's written in the newspaper. And it was from an athletics carnival where I'd broken five NT records and won five gold medals. And so from a very young age, athletics um, was my first childhood love. And and like I was saying, you know, there was lack of opportunities to go all the way through with my athletics as a kid up here in the top end. And hockey had, had all the opportunities, but it was in, I think, about 1994 after we had the Hockey Roos had won the World Cup in Ireland and we had about three months off after that and it was during that time I had joined an athletics group in Perth and started running and my athletics coach at the time said, you should actually run at the national championship. I was like, really? And so I ran a few pro races and I picked up a bit of money and I ran at the national championships in 1995 going into the um, the year where we had champions trophy that year in hockey and I placed in the top six in Australia over the 100 and the 200. So the seed was planted then. It was like, oh my God, I actually have all the talent that if I wanted to retire from hockey tomorrow, I could pursue an athletics career. So it was then that the, the the other seed was planted. So it wasn't just an overnight decision that I, you know, if, if I had gone to the Olympics and won Olympic gold medal, that I'd retire from that and go pursue my athletic dreams. And I actually had a um, interview in this World Hockey magazine, and it was post the um, '94 World Cup. I think it was going into '95, um, and I said, if we win. If I win an Olympic gold medal, if we win Champions Trophy this year, I'm going to retire and go and chase my dream of running at the Sydney Olympics because the Sydney Olympics had been named by then. And so, you know, it's interesting because Rick Charlesworth, um, you know, had said and made comment that people would think, oh, Nova's full of herself. And he said, no, she just backed herself. And I think that's 
also paramount to any successful athlete that you've got to back yourself you know you've got to continue to pick yourself up irrespective of the challenges or your your failures or your setback you've just got to keep picking yourself up and up and and I backed myself enough to know that I had the talent and when we won that Olympic gold medal and got to be celebrated for 25 days straight um seeing the sunrise and sunset each time with those amazing hockey room legends and you know I'm proud to call them my best mates you know friends for life um but it was then I said you know even though I retired on 97 caps I still could have kept playing I still could have gone to the Sydney Olympics but I wanted to chase my first childhood dream and that was to run for Australia. I think the transition between sports is unreal. I um I was talking to mum last night about it and for some reason I thought that you'd done the athletics first and then got into hockey and mum's like, nah, she was quick though. <laughs> um, can you tell me a little bit about your, your training regime and recovery? So first as a hockey player and then as a, well, in athletics as well, how did the training and recovery look at that elite level and how did they differ between the two sports? So I, I guess with hockey, um, it being an endurance sport and, um, you know, being under the regime of Rick Charlesworth, who just, you know, he was all about the 1% and he was all about never leaving any stone unturned. And, um, you know, we, we trained, we were like a machine, you know, we would run 40, 50k a week on top of the skill. So, when I look at that, you know, there were three or four times a week that we would run around the bridges of Perth or the 10K run down at Cottesloe Beach or up at Kings Park would do that run. So there was that. We all had to either work part-time or we had university commitments. But with myself, I had Jessica who was, you know, quite young at the time. And so I really relied on, you know, Richelle Hawkes and Elspeth Clements who Elspeth was there to help out with Jess and Richelle Hawkes' mother um, helped me out with Jessica as well and other times I'd push her in a pram or take her to training and she'd sit in the bunker or sit under tables and you know I was very grateful for the all the hockey teammates who were very supportive and and knew that I had a, a young child and knew that I was doing it on my own and so they were very supportive and I guess um that was the the difficulty is is the long days and being part part of a team where you know I had my needs as a mum and, and I had my daughters, but I also had to be very conscious that I was part of the team. And I was just very lucky that, you know, the, the, the Hockey Roo teammates were very accepting of, of me and, and my daughter as well at the time. And so we, they were gruelling and part of the recovery was we had to recover together. We trained together, you know, we were mentored together. So it was always an inclusive environment with, the sport of um, athletics, it was totally different. You know, it was, I only trained four days a week and I was a sprinter. So it was different types of training. It was a different type of diet. So with hockey, it was um, very much a high carbohydrate diet because you needed all the energy, all the carbohydrates to, to put the mileage in your legs. And then with athletics, it was a power sport. So the sport was totally different in terms of the, the different types of diet that I had to stick to and you know but it's it's a very lonely sport you know you're you're an individual and you've got all eyes only on you you sort of couldn't hide in the pack of a team sport and so it was totally different and everything that I did as a individual um, you know I had to be responsible for my wins and my losses and 
you know, if I wasn't prepared enough, I was the one that had to take responsibility for that. So it was a totally different mind shift in a lot of areas. But, you know, having Rick Charlesworth as a coach in hockey, um, I used a lot of the formulas that he taught me in life to, to make me into that successful athlete that I became. And, you know, I also went to America to train and it was a bit like me leaving Darwin to go to Perth and to be successful in, in the sport of hockey. You know, that, that environment that I put myself in playing with the, you know, the Aquinas Hockey Club where there were seven Australian players. Success breeds success. And that's why I was successful in hockey. And that's why I was successful in athletics because I, I, I surrounded myself with the people who had the same mindset as myself. It sounds like you had an incredibly supportive network when you were in hockey. What did your support network look like when you were in athletics? I'm imagining you had like a coach. Did you have much of a team around you as a support network? Well, when I went to America and trained, so I was in a group of athletes. Jessica was, she was six, seven years old then. So she was old enough to be taken to the track and she'd just bring a um, rollerblades down and she would just cruise up and down the track and so she the older she grew the easier it sort of became but yeah like you know you we we had a, a team environment around us where we had a masua and you know we had coaches who were ex-athletes themselves so they were sort of like a one-stop shop but yeah it was it was very different egos come out uh you know different types of personalities come out and it's, it's a dog-eat-dog world, you know, the sport of athletics. You know, like I said, the, the spotlight is always on you as an individual and, you know, you, you've got to be prepared for whatever the sport throws at you. And, yeah, it, it was different. But, you know, having that success, you know, straight away in 1997 where I went to the World Cup um, athletics, part of the relay team, and then winning in 1998 the um, Commonwealth silver, uh, sorry, gold medal in the 200 metres and the 4 by one and, yeah, it was it was interesting times, but you know, like I said, athletics was my first childhood love, and you know, there's a saying: you'll be successful if you love what you do and you do what you love. And and I certainly loved um, the sport of athletics. How did you find the two experiences at like the Olympics with different sports? What was the atmosphere like? What were your overall feelings about both Olympics? Well, I guess going to um, Atlanta, you know, as part of a hockey team, my roommate was Clover Maitland, who was our goalkeeper, and we were different different personalities, but the excitement was there. And being in, the, in a team environment, you know, at my first Olympics was just absolutely just incredible. And I'll never forget the, the morning of our Olympic final and Clover got up so early and one of the things that Rick Charles was said was you know we're creatures of habit don't change your habit because we're now in an Olympic village you know just stick to your your home routine and so I just remember you know I used to like to sleep in a bit and Clover got up early and she waited for me to open one eye and then she belted me on the head with a a pillow and she's like we're going to kick some ass tonight so I think in that environment with it, with a team sport, you know, you you pick each other up, you celebrate together, you're excited together, you experience all your highs and lows together, and that was just amazing to be part of that Olympic team at the Atlanta Olympics was just phenomenal. And those girls, you know, we've we had so many incredible memories, but to pass that up, then to go to the Sydney Olympics as an individual. 
Yep, you know, you, you have your, your friends and you have people who you get along with and then you don't get along with in the sport of athletics. So it's two totally different Olympics, two different entities and, and two different lots of emotions because, you know, for myself running that 400 metres, you're in your lane, you're there by yourself, it's, it's me and the clock. And I, I, I didn't win a medal at the Sydney Olympics, but I ran a personal best. Um, you know, reached the semi-final. I ended up, you know, running five times in front of 110,000 people. And, you know, I was part of the Olympic final with Kathy Freeman, Melinda Gaines and Tamsin Lewis, where we broke a 23-year-old Australian record in that Olympic final. So that's still unbroken. It's in the, you know, history books and it's something that I'll never forget. But you know, I'd have to say, you know, looking at the two Olympics where I could celebrate with your teammates and your friends for life and the sport of athletics was just so different. You know, it's totally different. But, you know, I got to run, like I said, in front of 110,000 people, packed stadium at the Sydney Olympics. And to me, that was, I didn't win a medal, but to me, that was me achieving my childhood dream. And it was just an amazing, amazing experience. I found a great quote that you said before running with the torch in the Northern Territory, you said, on that single day, it was as if all the different threads of my life had come together. My Aboriginality, my love of family represented by Jesse at my shoulder, my sport, which carried me on the roller coaster ride to this day, my spirituality, my love of Australia. When you look back at your time as an athlete, what are you most proud of? Is it a, a personal thing? Is it an Olympic gold? <sighs> I don't know. It's, so hard to just pick one you know being a mother that olympic flame at uluru being olympic champion running in the city it's it's so hard and like even now to be honest i i don't even get to reflect much on my past achievements because i'm still thinking forward like for me setting up my foundation and watching my kids grow into the adolescence and it's so hard, like I never really stopped to think about that one achievement. But, you know, obviously winning that Olympic gold was just, you know, being the first Aboriginal Olympic gold medalist is a title that, you know, no one can ever take away from you. You know, that my medal is in the Australian Museum and millions of Australian people have gone through and seen it and they've seen the story and they've seen me with that big cheesy smile kissing my my medal in that, <laughs> that museum. So... Yeah, I, if you have to have one, you know, I guess that moment, it was it was phenomenal, yeah. Exactly, I think it's an incredible achievement, not only an Olympic champion, but also the first Indigenous person to win an Olympic gold medal. I think it's an incredible feat. Were there any difficult challenges along the way for you as an athlete? Like, were injuries an issue? Um, I was actually pretty lucky in the sport of hockey, the worst things I had was sprained ankles, I think I injured a hammy, I got smacked in my mouth with a hockey ball once and had stitches in my lip and lost a, an entire tooth, so that was pretty brutal at the oh. time, but I managed to get through and, you know, like I think about preparation, you know, Rick Charlesworth was a big fan of yoga and it was interesting when we used to do yoga as part of the team, our injuries went right down you know I, I guess we developed strength within our muscles and our core stability so that was fantastic and 
then I sort of look at my athletics career and apart from the odd hamstring, um, I got through and competed every major championship every year that I um, was running for Australia. So I was, I was pretty lucky, you know, injuries were never a major factor. Um, you know, I, I experienced racism during my time in, in the sport, which I've publicly spoken about, but, you know, my experience of racism, you know, I, I had the support of girls in the hockey team who, who stood with me in solidarity for that. And when I was outspoken about it during my athletics career, um, you know, there were consequences and actions that were taken um, as part of that. So, you know, I, I think that's part of life's journey. You know, when you're at certain levels, um, you're in a position of power. You're in a position that you can make a change or make a difference and, and stand for the things that, you know, you believe that are represent injustice and, and just try and make it for the next generation to be easier, I guess. So, yeah, to answer that question, being a mother was difficult at times, but, you know, I've I had the support and, and just got through it. I don't know how at times I did get through it, but I just did it. I think just the, the drive, the determination and the willingness to make sacrifices is what got me through. I have read up a little bit about the racism that occurred in sport and also in politics as well. So this might tie into the next question, but how did you manage stress uh, in the sport, both internally and externally? So you obviously had a lot of pressure internally to want to go out and win gold, but it sounds like you had a lot of external pressures as well. How did you manage those during your time in sport and also in politics? We might as well jump into that as well now. Yeah, what what I did learn, again, going back to Rick Charlesworth, was we can only control the controllables. And if there was shit weather, it was cold, it was hailing, and, you know, in, in the sport of hockey, you know, we would rock up to a major championship to, to a game and it, it was the, the weather was conditions was the same for everybody and that's how we trained we trained in conditions we knew that we were going to eventually play in at times and so I think it's about developing that mental toughness about okay how how am I going to control my emotions to an external environment and that's what we learned in, in sports, it was building up resilience to, to the outside. But also what I learned was I can only control what I can control and that's my emotions and how I'm going to re react to certain things. And I certainly used those tools. When I sort of went into politics, there were all these external forces which I could not control. You know, the media, the trolling, the, the death threats, the people ringing my office and you know, hating me because I was an Aboriginal person, hating me because I challenged the status quo and hating me because I was outspoken. All I could control was how I was going to react to that. And I think sports certainly put me in, in good stead for how I, you know, wanted to, to, what sort of politician that I was going to become. And, you know, so certainly a lot of those things were hurtful. But, you know, my husband, it was interesting because it affected him and he's a non-Indigenous person and, he, I think, at times was more offended and more hurt than what I was uh, when I was, you know, sort of racially vilified and because I'd had built up almost a, an immunity to it because it's like, okay, yep, next, 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 whatever. You know, I just always had to be true to myself, true to my journey, true to the course that I was on. And, and like I said, you know, I, I've learned that skill of being able to now 
be reactive to how I can um, react to a situation that I can't control. I feel like no amount of sport can prepare someone for that sort of mental toughness and that resilience. I think, or one, it's disgusting some of the things you've said in terms of like death threats and stuff. No one should ever have to go through that. I think that's horrible. Mm. Um, But you've mentioned a couple things, so like resilience and that in your time as sport. What other skills do you think you can actually pull from your time in sport that you've used in your everyday life, whether that is politics or setting up your foundation now? What just keeping busy, you know, and, and also in order for my mind to be healthy and clear and to continue to set goals, you have to feel good on the inside and that's keeping your body healthy. And so I've, I've maintained a, a pretty good level of fitness. Like for the times that I was in politics, you're just physically exhausted because you work around the clock and, you know, politics is... 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There's no sick leave. There's no time off. It's just you're giving. You're being elected to your constituents. So I, I guess what I what I did find in sports to be successful, you had to develop and what's the word? So for myself in in the sport of hockey, for example, I was always a striker. And then Rick wanted me to become a defender. So I had to reteach myself and... I, I retaught myself how to do so many things that I didn't know. In politics, if people threw me a question and said, what do you know about this? If I wasn't informed, if I didn't know enough, I wouldn't give an opinion of something if I didn't know myself. So in sports, I had to know things. I had to learn. And there's no shame in not knowing. But but it's, it's a big and bold thing to, to go and learn things or practice things to become excellent at it. And what I did learn in sports is you're only as strong as your weakest link. And so I use those skills and resources in into politics and then now everyday life, like I'm 50 next year and, and I haven't stopped. You know, I'm still busy and my mum still bloody growls me at 11 o'clock at night. She's, oh, for goodness sake, stop working. No, but I'm like, I can't stop. It's just who I am. You know, I, I'm busy. I do so many things from... You know, kids in primary school wanting to do assignments and me talking to them and helping them and from just people like yourself and, you know, having meetings with politicians and setting up my foundations and then looking after myself and then looking after my kids and being there 24-7 for my children and helping them to achieve their goals. So I don't, I don't know any difference than just to, to, to keep going. You know, I sort of feel that the next 15, 20 years of my life is going to be just as valuable as my last 30 years of my life. I think it also ties in nicely as what you were saying earlier about just backing yourself as well. There's, you can know as much as you do, but if you don't back yourself, no one's going to, I guess, follow suit. Jumping back a little bit, can you tell me a little bit about your transition out of sports? So when you decided I'm going to retire, what were your, what were your next steps? What were your next movements like? So in 2001 was my last major championships and that was in Edmonton and I was going to there to run the 400 metres, um, which I'd qualified for. And when I um, got to the world champ, I was also pregnant, three months pregnant I was. That was code for, okay, I'm either going to retire or take some time off after I have destiny. <laughs> um, she was born in March 2002. So 
that was how my sporting career ended up finishing was because, you know, I'd, I'd had another child and Destiny was born March 2002 and Jack was born December 2003. So having two young children so close together, 13 years of representing Australia, felt content that I'd done so much in my sporting career and, and I was happy to retire the hockey stick, retire the spikes and, and become a full-time mum, which I did. And it wasn't long after I had Jack that I was, you know, dragging Destiny and Jack around the countryside, doing a whole heap of work around the Aboriginal health and wellbeing space around Australia. So, yeah, still to this day, I, I still do the same. I, I take my kids everywhere. If it's not my kids, it's my grandson. So I still continue to put the hard yards in. And, yeah, I've, you know, I've never shied away from hard work and never shied away from the fact that you can you can give back to community, which I've always prided myself on. I think you've always, in, in my opinion, I think you've always lived up to that. I think um, becoming Australia's first Indigenous woman elected into federal parliament is an incredible achievement and all the work you've done championing for Indigenous issues and rights. What did you find the most rewarding part of working in politics? I, I guess going into parliament, you know, it took until 2013 for the first Aboriginal woman to enter into federal parliament and so that that was a big thing and like I'd, I'd been asked back in 2004 was I interested in in parliament in going into politics and I'd said no then because I felt that I hadn't done enough community work to not only to get yourself a profile but I didn't I wanted to be more informed and more understanding you know I didn't want to just come from a world of sports in, and be thrust into to the world of politics where there's so much to cover. So I'd done a significant amount of work from 2004 up into 2013 when I first went in, but it was scary because it, it was an area where no Aboriginal woman had gone before. So I put up all these little post-it notes like I did in sports around the house, you know, where people like your Martin Luther King and, and uh, your Nelson Mandela who were, you know, political leaders in the area that I was going in as an as a black person in into the parliament so that sort of motivated me that I could do this but I wanted to be more informed and I wanted to be a fully informed politicians of you know the things that were important to the constituents of the northern territory but yeah it, I guess breaking that ceiling and like you can't be what you can't see you know and for me it's set a precedent that yes an aboriginal woman can put their hand up they they can serve the people who their representatives are and so to know that in the last election there was some 19 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that put their hand up to go into federal parliament so it's it's set a precedent that you know you you can do this you you can go into parliament but you know it, it wasn't easy because you know for 365 days of the year I would have been racially abused had emails that were sent in you know four or five days a week um and i endured that for, for for three years so it's hard you know you've got to have thick skin you know you've got to be prepared to take criticism where criticism is due but i guess for myself you know i i got to sink my teeth into a lot of things um which as a senator you know you're responsible for a number of committees number of senate inquiries you know to be able to fill your head with so much knowledge and and to um 
to serve with purpose. So there are a lot of things where you can lobby government for the government of the day for money you represent and you can get things overturned and and you know there there are a few quite a few wins that I got even though I wasn't in opposition as a backbench senator so you know it it was a very rewarding and fulfilling position that I was in and like I said you know to break those glass ceilings that enabled other people to be confident to put their hand up to want to serve in the Australian parliament can only be a good thing I think there's a, a common theme here about knowledge is power and I, I completely agree. I I think the amount of glass ceilings that you broke, you have been an absolute trailblazer across sport and politics that it's amazing to see that uh, it is being continued and number of Indigenous people now in um, Parliament increasing is a great thing to see. When you look back at your time, what legacy do you most hope to leave as a person? Well. I'd like to be known as a little girl who dreamt big because I think my story is not about privilege. I I wasn't born into a privilege, but what I was born with was talent, parents who were supportive of me and valued education and work ethic. And I think that was a formidable combination, but... I think for my legacy that I would just love to be known as, you know, this, this little girl, this little Aboriginal girl that ran barefooted in, in the top end that anything is possible in life. And if that's my legacy that can give hope to many young kids who, who, who don't have um, the privileges, that if you work hard and you value your education and you value opportunities and you're willing to make sacrifices that you, you can achieve in life. A little girl who dreams big. I love that. That's so sweet. <laughs> so you said you were working on a foundation at the moment. How much of that is public? How much can you tell me about it? We're in the process of I've got my board together, which is the fundamentals, I guess, of, of setting up a foundation. So it's just now about formalising all the logistics of that. And um, my foundation will focus mainly on food security in um, remote Aboriginal communities. You know, we, we just saw recently that there was a federal inquiry into food prices and food security in, in remote Aboriginal communities. And, and this is a sad thing that was discussing in 2020 for all Australia, which is known as the Great Land. It, it's not so great for, for many Aboriginal people who live in remote communities. And, you know, when we talk about sport, and education, if you can't have the basic fundamentals of access to quality food and good food and also purified water, then you, you, you don't really have much hope in life of being afforded a full life. So they're the two areas that my, my foundation will focus on. I'll add a yeah. link to it. So if anyone wants to go check it out, support it, uh, they can go there. There are so many athletes, so many people across Australia, across the world that look up to you now. Do you have any advice that you received as an athlete that you still carry with you today? It's the 1%. You know, a lot of people use excuses about their failures instead of using, having every excuse why you can do things. I say to my children, if you say you can or say you can't, either way you're right. So it's just that whole mindset of, you know, how you look at disappointment, how you look at 
a mistake or a failure? Are you using that as an opportunity to grow, to become a better person? So, you know, they're, they're the things that I've always found. And, I, and I'd like to think that you have to ask yourself the reasons, well, why didn't I achieve this? And if you go back far enough, you'll be able to answer it yourself. And that's one of the lessons I, I actually learned in hockey with Rick Charles, going back to Rick again, you know, when there was a goal scored against us. He would wind that bloody tape back four or five minutes and say, well, if this had been done there, it wouldn't have ended up here. So we're all responsible for something, you know, as, as a player. So, you know, when things haven't gone my way, probably why at times I'm obsessive compulsive about doing things correctly. And I will say to my kids, you know, don't leave anything unturned. If you're going to do it right, ask yourself, have you done everything correct? in order to get the outcome that you want. And if you haven't done everything correct, we've only got yourself to blame. I want to say I agree. <laughs> I don't know if I always live <laughs> up to it, but, yeah, I think that's really important. Uh, that 1% is the make or break, and I think it's the 1% of people that are successful in sport. We finish off the podcast with the same question for all guests. What's next for you, your family? You've mentioned the foundation, but what's on the horizon for you as a person? I just want to continue um, having my health and fitness really normalized, you know, that um, it's about creating really good habits in your life, about drinking, exercising, taking time away from social media because social media can either be really good or it can be debilitating for a lot of people as well for their mind because there can be so much negativity around the place and you can get caught up with stuff that's going on. Um, so I guess, you know, I want to comp- get my foundation going, get that up and going, get some really good positive outcomes um, and just continue to watch my children grow and, and grow into their, their full potential. And, and my little grandson, you know, he's just turned 11 and I'm really enjoying watching him, you know, grow as a, as a young boy and watching him in his footy boots and the things that he does. But, you know, they're the things that I'm I'm really excited about. But also, you know, my mum's 74. She's, she's not getting younger and it's having valuable time with, with the old people, I guess, as well, you know. I've seen so many passings of old people lately and it's really sad. And so it's about spending quality time with those who are close to you, especially the um, the elders. I, I can't wait to see what comes next for you for your kids I I'm so excited to just keep following everything that you're doing I think you're a great inspiration uh we'll finish it up there but thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to me I really appreciate it yeah no worries at all thank you so much for your time if you enjoyed the podcast episode uh you can leave the comments on the podcast instagram page at podcast so what's next If you want to listen to more episodes, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Google Podcasts.